church ever since we started about two and a half years ago is uh, really good leadership and, and people who love the Lord and love his people. And uh, one of those folks is John Cronwald. We welcome John. Uh, John has really developed a lot uh, in our ministry and, and has grown a ton and uh, for the last few years has been serving as one of our elders on our elder team. We've got seven guys right now that are, that are serving on that team. And for about the last year, he's been overseeing um, community groups, what's now becoming uh, called Redemption Communities, um, and providing leadership. So if you're leading a community group, you obviously know John and, and have experienced some of his leadership. But um, we felt like with that being a core ministry of ours, really we, we do Sundays and we do communities. Those are really the two main things. We felt like, you know, it needs a little bit more um, time um, than John could give it just as a volunteer. And so we've decided to bring him on part-time as a, as a paid pastor um, to be able to give at least half of his week to providing leadership there. Yeah, very cool. And, um, and so John's going to be really freed up to be able to really coach and develop and meet with leaders and just take that ministry um, to the next level. And so we wanted to give you a chance for, probably a lot of you by now haven't met John, even, even you know, you're relatively new or whatever. So I want to give you a chance to meet him and to hear a little bit about um, some of what he's envisioning for this ministry. So John, um, tell us just first just about yourself, I guess, your yeah. family. Born and raised here in Arizona. Lived here... Uh Bounced all around the East Valley, Mesa, Tempe, Chandler, Gilbert. Um, been married to my wife for seven years. We've got four kids, Jack, Emma, James, and Kate, and, uh, and I'm just really enjoying this season of life with them. Um, yeah. Cool. Tell us, like, so you're, you're going to be working part-time here with the church. Um, what's the job you've been doing that yeah. you're now yeah, we've got a. My dad's well. got a family business, um, really uh, designing and equipping new restaurants, and so I've uh, been doing, a, doing that for several years now as a project manager there, and so it's just a great opportunity to be able to scale back there and, and continue working there, um, but be able to be here as well. Yeah. So as I said earlier, communities is a huge part of our vision. Uh, what would you talk about in terms of the vision of communities? What is, why is this so important? What are, what are communities supposed yeah, to be Yeah, well, about? you've mentioned several times this morning the vision of redemption is gospel-centered and outward-focused. And so that gospel-centered idea is just basically being motivated to, um, to live and, and do everything we do influenced by the gospel. And that, in fact, allows us and empowers us to be outward-focused, to take our eyes off of ourself. Um, what it does is it gives us a new love, a new affection for God, for the church, and for the world. And so really that's the, the narrowed focus for our communities is that we want to be um, people that love God love the church and love the world. And how that looks, I mean, loving God, that's, that's just pursuing him through his word, through prayer, studying together. Obviously, we have such a love for ourselves and for our own, for our own idols, the things that comfort us. Um, so God gives us, through the gospel, just an ability to know him and to love him. And so we want to be people that do that. Loving the church, that's just loving one another. That's being able to use our gifts to serve one another, to build joyful, godly relationships with one another, um, be able to bear one another's burdens, all of that. And then loving the world is practically being able to take this um, good news of the gospel that we have and, and to show the world. And that's done through our words, but also through our actions. And so we have opportunities just to bless the communities that we live in, the workplaces we're at. Um, and we want to be people that do that individually, obviously, but together, um, together in groups. Yeah. So just to be clear, communities are small groups of people 
generally uh, anywhere from eight or 10 up to sometimes as many as 15 to 20. Um, groups of people that get together on a consistent basis, try to build relationships, care for each other, and together love God, love the church, love the world. A lot of times we would say, oh yeah, I, that's what I'm trying to do, but I, if you're trying to do it all by yourself, um, you're not going to do it uh, all that well. And so we've really tried to free up and, and minimize a lot of our programming and, and ministries and stuff like that to really try to make it where uh, as many people can be in that as possible. I, we've had, historically, um, as high as I think 85% of our Sunday attendance in, uh, in communities, and at times it's been somewhere around 65, so 65 to 85. So a lot of you have really owned this, and as we start this back up in the fall, um, we want to encourage you to, to plan on this and be praying about this and make this a, a significant part of, of how we do ministry together as a church. So uh, with that, there are a few tweaks, I guess, no, no big overhauls necessarily, but some tweaks that are going to be coming this fall. Um, why don't you talk, just give, give everyone a little sneak preview of what yeah, that will be. The, the biggest one you'll notice, and, and what we've done in the past, if you've been involved in any of our groups, is we've done these short semester groups, three to four months, which is great for getting 85% of our church involved. It's just a real easy way to get plugged in every few months. Um, the downside is we're talking about loving the church, loving the world. It's really difficult to do that with people that you've just met this month. And so uh, what, what we would like to see happen is to build these relationships over the course of a year to get to know um, so-and-so's neighbor that they're praying about every week, and now we can go and bless them. And so that only happens through rubbing shoulders um, week after week for an extended period of time. So we're going to take that short semester-based system that we've had in the past and really extend that for a full year and have opportunities just to be able to um, get to know one another longer. Yeah, so we'll still have some on-ramps for new people to get connected and things, but, but once we, you kind of connect with a community, we, we'd love you to stay there and invest in those relationships for that year and, and see what God will do. Really, most of the groups kind of, well, I don't say most, but a, a good number of groups kind of function like that because they just keep signing up together. Um, so that, that makes sense. Is there any other things that you see tweaking? Um, you, he mentioned the name Redemption Communities. I mean, obviously, you guys are going to still call it whatever you want, small groups, <laughs> home groups. But, uh, but as, as you hear that from, from the front, Redemption Communities, that's what that ministry is. Um, the other thing that we're really going to do, and it's just a, it's, it shows the, the support and the priority that the leadership is placing on this, is we're really going to give some intentionality to the leaders. We're, we're developing some training opportunities. We're going to provide coaching, a lot of structure for the leaders um, to be better equipped to be yeah. able to lead these groups. And so that'll, that'll, you'll notice that even if you're just in a group, you're not a leader. You'll notice that, I think. Yeah. Well, along those lines, if you're interested in, in being a leader or maybe learning to lead, like filling an apprentice type role, um, talk with John because in these next six uh, weeks or so, is when we're going to be um, really kind of ramping up for that training, a lot of those experiences, and, and be ready to launch those groups this fall. So um, please do be in touch with that. And be in prayer for John as he transitions into this role. And for us as a team, I think this is a really key and exciting moment for us as a, as a leadership and as a staff. Um, we've probably honestly been a little understaffed in some areas, and so now we have an opportunity to increase that um, with, with John coming on. Um, so that gives you uh, Matthew... Luke, John, um, and soon we'll be introducing to you Mark. Uh, Mark Andress is going to be joining our team with children's ministry. Um, yeah, so hopefully in the next few weeks you'll get a chance to, to meet Mark and hear from him. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's funny. We need um, a Paul. 
Yeah, Paul or Peter or something. Um, so anyway, but, but this, this is a good thing. And it, it, you know, John's leadership will free me and Matthew and some other folks up to really um, focus on some other areas. And overall, it's, I think it means good things for our, for our church. So um, let's take a moment and pray for John and for that ministry. And then we'll dive into the, the scripture this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John and his leadership and his faithfulness. Um, Lord, your word tells us that what qualifies men for leadership um, isn't any particular status or um, pedigree or family history or income level or age, um, but is godliness that's sustained over a long period of time, that's evident to all, um, that's proven, that begins in the home. And Lord, we're so thankful that John has demonstrated that over time, and um, he's a godly man, and uh, we're thankful for him and thankful for his leadership. Pray that you'd bless him in this time of transition, and pray for us as a church that we would own and embrace the reality of doing life and uh, living, um, living out the commands you've given us to love you and to love each other and to love um, the people you've put around us in the world. Um, to do that together, help us to embrace that and to, to really see incredible things happen through those communities. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank John. Good morning. My name is uh, Jeffrey Wilcox, and I'm one of the campus elders. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Today we're going to be in Jeremiah 31. If you know where Psalms at, it's a few books to the right. If you're using uh, one of the black hardbound Bibles, that's on uh, 660. We're going to be reading uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Please remember we're reading God's word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those, day, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. This arena, God's word, please be seated. Well, if you had the opportunity right now to be a junior high or high school aged uh, boy and you attended Grace Community Church in Tempe, uh, there's a story that inevitably you would know about. Uh, Grace Community Church was one of the, has been one of the most influential churches in the valley for a long time. Uh, it seems to me that anyone who's been a Christian for longer than 15 years at some point went to Grace. Uh, just by a show of hands, curiosity-wise, how many of you have, have ever gone to Grace Community Church in Tempe? Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's just crazy. They've had a lot of influence. And, uh, and if you were in the junior high or high school, you would surely hear... An incredible story, a story of a young man 
who saw a girl he really liked. And he pursued her. And even though he was gangly and kind of nerdy, he saw this petite, pretty girl, and he thought, I've got to have her. It's the story, the legend of Matthew Brazelton. <laughs> Matthew Brazelton, who's one of our pastors here, uh, is, is literally a legend at Grace Community Church. A number of years ago, I met this kid that was in the ministry, and, his, and Matthew's name came up, and the guy said, is he the one that like never gave up and got the girl? <laughs> yep, that's him. That's Matthew. He sees Christy playing in a band, and he just goes, I know I've got to have her. And so he um, manipulates his way into the band, uh, <laughs> pretends he's a better guitar player than he is, um, threatens all the other people that want to get into the band instead of him, gets as close as he can to Christy. But Christy, her heart's set on she's going overseas. She's going to be a missionary. She doesn't have time for this marriage, and especially marriage to him. And she is like going, going all out. And, uh, and, and Matthew just won't take no for an answer. So he keeps pursuing, and he keeps going hard, and he keeps um, giving her gifts and trying to get closer to her. And eventually her will erodes, and he wins the girl. And he's legend there because people are like, that's just amazing that you would have that much tenacity to pursue this girl that clearly wasn't interested in you. And Matthew will tell you, he had to work pretty hard to win <laughs> Christie's heart, um, but he did. The reason I tell that story is because I think all of us are to some degree intrigued by those stories of pursuit, those love stories of somebody who, who won't give up, they won't back down, they, they, they know the person they love and they will sacrifice and they will give and they will pursue and they will exert energy and creativity and thought until they win the person they love. Maybe you've had a moment where you felt like that, you, you were pursuing someone like that and you just know the thrill of that, of, of that chase, the thrill of the pursuit. And in fact, one of the disappointments for many in marriage is that once the pursuit is done and you've caught the person you're looking for, the pursuit seems to end. Um, that's unfortunate. Uh, some of you have been pursued, or even in your relationships now, you just know how good it feels when someone else pursues you. When someone else is thinking about you, when someone else um, intentionally is thinking about what you need and they, and, they, and they come after you, there's something about that pursuit that we all resonate with and that we all love. And what we want to look at today is the reality that God is pursuing us. God is coming after us. God is removing the obstacles and has been throughout the history of the world to pursue his people. Now this is amazing in light of the history of the world and what has gone on. And, and really what we're doing in this series over these 13 weeks called Doctrine is we're looking at this story of God. We're looking at the story of the world. What has God done in the world? And these key truths that we pick up along the way. So we started with this idea that God has eternally existed, one God and three persons known as the Trinity. Eternally happy, eternally loving, no need, no deficiency, just joyful relationship within the triune God. We see that this God has revealed himself. One of the ways he's revealed himself is through creation. He creates this beautiful world just as an overflow of the joy that's in his heart. And then he creates people in his image, men and women, male and female. He creates them in his image uh, to be mirrors that reflect his glory to each other and to the world. 
men and women created to mirror God's glory. We looked at last week, there's a fall. That's what it's called. Theologians call it that, the fall. It's the fall into sin. It's, it's humanity saying, I don't want to be a mirror reflecting God's glory. I want to reflect my own. And so the mirror breaks and it turns on the people themselves. And rather than living for God, they believe the lie of the enemy that God was holding back and that God didn't really love them. And instead they engage in what they want to do and that's sin. Now listen, if you never heard that story before, there would be something in you that would be going, well, what happens next? And I mean, we've heard that story, and many of you have heard that story so many times, like, yeah, 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 creation, and it was good, and image of God, and fall, and yeah, then Jesus is going to come. But if you'd never heard that before, at this point you'd be going, edgy your seat. What's going to happen? How is God going to respond to this rebellion? And the reality is that God responds by graciously and faithfully pursuing his people in love. It's the pursuit that the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is just a wonderful Bible for kids, and I'll tell you, it's a book that every adult should read. If, even if you don't have kids, you should go buy the Jesus Storybook Bible and read it. And over and over in that book, there's this refrain talking about God's pursuing love. Here's what it calls it. It says, God loves us with a never-stopping never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's how God loves us. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever, which is amazing in light of the response that his people have had to him. I mean, think about it. How do you respond when someone hurts you? How do you respond when someone betrays you, ignores you, minimizes you, how do you feel in those moments? How do you respond? Well, God responds with a never-ending, never-stopping, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's his heart. Sadly, a lot of us think that if we're going to ever connect with God, it's because we have to pursue him. And so some of you, you're on this chase to try to be really good or, or be really impressive or not do all the bad things that people warned you against in hopes that maybe somehow you could get to God. But the reality is, the good news is, God is pursuing us. Simon Tugwell says it this way. I think this is a very good and helpful quote. He says, so long as we imagine that it is we who have to look for God, we must often lose heart. Don't you think so? I mean, if, you're, if, you, if it's up to you to catch God, man, I mean, that's an exhausting journey. You're going to lose heart. But it's the other way about. He is looking for us. And so we can afford to recognize that very often we are not looking for God, far from it. We are in full flight from him, in high rebellion against him. And he knows that and has taken it into account. Our hope is in his determination to save us and he will not give in. Isn't that a great line? Our hope is in God's determination to save us. He won't give in. It's his pursuit. That's what we're looking at today is this pursuit of God. Now this is so key. The pursuit that God has of his people tells us more about God and his value than about us and our intrinsic value. She might be inclined to go, man, people must be just absolutely amazing. And, and, and to be sure, we're the only thing in creation made in God's image. 
And yet the fall, the rebellion, the sin against God has so distorted us that, that to be sure, there's nothing in us that's, that's lovely or that's worthy of God's pursuit. No, this pursuit that God shows us tells us much more about him and his grace and his love and his unstoppable, never-ending, always-failing, or always-and-forever love. Not failing. Never failing. Always-and-forever love. That's what it tells us about. There are a couple of passages of Scripture that, that highlight this, that this is really about God and his glory. Deuteronomy 7 is one of these. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You know what it's saying? Hey, 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 Israel, God didn't pick you because you were greater, because you weren't, you were the smallest. Why did God choose you? Why did God love you? Why did God pursue you? Because he loves you. Is it because you're so wonderful? No, it's because he is. He loves you. The New Testament picks up on this very theme in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, something that to me is just... (laughs) an interesting perspective to get of yourself. I think it's healthy to go, okay, how how does the Bible see us as people? Here's a great description. This is talking to Christians. Paul writes this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul is saying the exact same thing. Listen, God has chosen you and loved you and pursued you in spite of you. What what, what were you in that? Foolish, weak, low, despised, not. That's us. And if you're here today and one of your critiques of Christianity or of the church or of of church people is that, you know what, they just talk like they think they're so much better than everybody. And they think they're so great and they think they're so wise and they got all the answers. Listen, that's not the way the Bible describes Christians. Biblical Christianity causes us to see ourselves as more foolish than we thought. And a little less sure of our smarts and wisdom than we think. And much weaker than we would like to portray. And so if, if that's your critique, it's a fair critique. And if you'd say, you know what, the church is full of hypocrites. They act like they know everything and they're so strong. But really they're just so weak. I'd say you're right. The church is full of hypocrites. And we have room for one more. So come join us. But in reality, according to God, this is who we are. Why? It finishes, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. All of this pursuit of God that we're talking about today is designed to bring glory and honor to him. That he is the one with this incredible love. Now God's pursuit of us 
takes a particular form. And so we're going to narrow the focus today on the form of God's pursuit. All throughout the Bible, God is pursuing his people. He's communicating with them. He's doing things on their behalf. He's interceding for them. But there's these moments, these special moments um, called covenants where God has to establish, here's the nature of the relationship. And so covenants are a key part of God's pursuit. This is true in any relationship, in any significant relationship there comes a moment where you have to define the relationship remember in college uh, when we would talk dating we would talk about hey have you had a dtr talk yet you define the relationship like where are you guys exactly right everyone's coming up to you right if you're single and you're in a relationship people are like so is it like serious is it i don't see a ring yet right i mean like well we haven't we haven't had that talk yet you have these moments where you've got to define the relationship. This was key for Molly and I when we uh, first were getting to know each other because uh, when we went to Illinois, I was a freshman, she was a sophomore, and I had dated a girl in high school and just wasn't interested in, in any kind of romantic relationship. And so getting to know her was really just trying to get to know her as a friend. And I clearly admired her faith in the Lord, and so we built this friendship. Well, the, the more you spend time around Molly, the more you start to go, dang. I like this girl, right? And so my, my romantic interest in her began to grow. Uh, my affection for her began to grow. And there was a lot of confusion among our friends because we would spend time together about, well, are you guys more than friends? Or you, I mean, what is this? And we had these key moments where we had to define the relationship. Remember one where someone had kind of asked her permission to talk to me about something, and she was like, uh why is this girl asking me this? I don't have any claim on you. And she came and said, we gotta, let's define this relationship. There's a new social networking tool out. Some of you early adopters might be on it already called Google+. Any of you on Google+, yet? You're like, I'm still trying to learn what Facebook is. Yeah, <laughs> Google+, is what's gonna replace Facebook. And what it is, is it's like Facebook, only it makes you assign each of the people that you're connected with into a particular circle. So you're going to have to start defining some relationships. Is this person a real friend or are they like an acquaintance? Is this a work friend? Is this a church friend? Is this a real, like I'm in crisis friend? Is this family? I mean, you've got to define relationships around you. And that doesn't mean that uh, the relationship after you define it is stale. Actually, it's the other way around. When Molly and I had these define the relationship moments... It was very key to go, okay, that's where we stand. And there was great freedom and joy in understanding that relationship and how it worked and where you stood. Now, covenant is God's way of defining the relationship. So all throughout the Bible, God is pursuing people. God's relating to people. God is communicating. God is interacting. And at these key moments, he has to have some define the relationship talks. That's the idea of a covenant. This is all in the context of God's radical, passionate, pursuing love. And so here's a definition of a covenant, uh, specifically a covenant that God would make with people. Uh, Wayne Grudem defines it this way. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. An unchangeable, divinely imposed legal 
agreement between God and man. So when you see legal agreement, you tend to think, okay, one party comes and says, here's my demands, and the other says, here's my demands, and they sort of negotiate this like a player's union and a group of owners, right? I mean, some kind of legal agreement, maybe. Uh, No, that's not exactly what's happening. This is a divinely imposed legal agreement. This is God pulls up to the table and says, here are the terms. I'm crazy about you. Take them or leave them. That's what a covenant is. And there's all these elements of a covenant uh, that that you see consistently throughout Scripture. So here here they are. Covenants include blessings. Uh, Here's the blessing of of being in this relationship. Here's what's going to happen to you on the basis of being in this relationship. There's conditions. In order for this relationship to continue healthy and to be the way that this covenant intends it to be, these things need to happen. There's always a sign to a covenant. Something that's a reminder. Oh yeah, that's the relationship we have. And then there's always a new community that is formed out of a covenant. So I want to give you an example of a covenant, not necessarily from the Bible, but something that all of you are familiar with. All of you have seen this covenant. All of you have, uh, to one degree or another, experienced elements of this covenant. And that's the covenant of marriage. It's a wedding covenant. So at a wedding, a bride and groom stand before a pastor or a judge, and they make a covenant together. That's why marriage is a really big deal. This is important. This is a, this is a covenant relationship. And the blessings of this covenant would be friendship, uh, partnership, that sense of we're together. It's not good for man to be alone, and, and all of life together, and sex, and children. And you could go on and on about the various blessings that are beginning at this wedding covenant. The conditions of a wedding covenant are faithfulness. I take you and no other. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor. That, that, that whole vows thing really matters. Those are the conditions of the relationship. If those are broken, the, the blessings of this relationship are not going to be in place, right? There's a sign. The rings that you're giving each other today are circle. Celebrating the unending power of your love. They're also made of fine, precious metals to remind you that your marriage too is fine and precious. I give you this ring in token and pledge of my constant faith and undying love. Right? I mean, there you go, it's on your finger. You look at it and go, okay, that reminds me of something. It reminds me of this covenant agreement. There's a sign to it, and the new community that's birthed is the family. This husband and wife are forming a new family. They leave father and mother. They cleave together. They become one. This this is a covenant. That's exactly what this is. And so that's an example, just just to give you a sense. And I don't think there's many of you, I mean, some people would say, you know, I don't need to go to marriage. That just formalizes everything. And, you know, if we love each other, we love each other. I think most people that get married go, you know what, getting married didn't didn't hinder our ability to, to love each other. It, it actually helped. It gave us parameters and guidelines, and, and, and we, we pursued it. Some of you are going, yeah, right. You don't know about my marriage. Well, I don't. You're right. So there are these covenants in Scripture. Um, theologians will say, some will debate about whether, whether Adam was actually under a covenant with God, sort of an implicit covenant, Uh, before he fell. But after he fell into sin, uh, we see that God continues to relate to people on the basis of these covenants, and specifically what theologians would call covenants of grace. 
In other words, these are divinely instituted legal agreements between God and man that God is initiating. These are grace uh, on his behalf. He doesn't have to do this. He wants to do this because of his pursuing love. And so I want to just talk you through um, four of these covenants that we see in the Old Testament. The first one we see is with a guy named Noah. And perhaps you've heard of Noah and the ark. Uh, That's in Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis chapter 6, you're just a few chapters away from where the fall happened. But you see that the whole world has been plunged into rebellion against God. Everybody is doing whatever they want. The evil and the wickedness is rampant. It's so bad that there's this cryptic passage that says that God is saying, I'm sorry I even made man. And he's furious and he's angry and he's going to wipe them out. And so he sends a flood to wipe out the entire earth, except for one family finds grace, finds what the scripture there calls favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that's the family led by Noah. Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the Hebrew word for grace, which is key because most people totally misunderstand that story and tell it like, everyone was bad, but Noah was good, so God saved him. No, everyone was bad, including Noah, Noah found grace. That's the, that's the true part of the story. And so Noah finds grace. He's delivered as he builds this ark and, and animals. And you got the whole thing, flooding, 40 days, 40 nights. The earth dries. And at that point, God makes a covenant. Now, he'd been relating to Noah all up to this point. But at this point, he says, we need to define this relationship. And so he makes this covenant. And the covenant has the following things attached to it. There's a blessing. A blessing, the promise that God will not flood the earth again to destroy all of humanity. Sure, there will be little floods and there will be earthquakes and there will be weather challenges, but there will never be a worldwide flood that destroys everything. That's the promise. The condition is no drinking blood. Specifically, that has with it the idea of of not eating animals that haven't been cooked. Um, And no murder. And it specifies there that you're not to kill one another because you're made in God's image. So you see here that this first covenant is very, it's very broad. It's not not so specific. These will get more and more specific and show us more and more aspects of God's heart and who he is and what he's done for us. The sign of, of this covenant is the rainbow. So every time you see the rainbow, you know, twice a year in Arizona, when you see a rainbow... It should remind you, okay, God is not going to flood this place, though I wish he'd try, right? Um, I mean, there's this rainbow, and that's a a forever sign to all of humanity, Christian or non-Christian, that God has made this promise. The community is Noah's extended family, and so they begin to to, um, multiply and spread out throughout different parts of the earth, and uh, you see all the different descendants there, and they're all listed, and that's to show you that this, this new family is spreading throughout the earth. But, but here's what happens, and this happens continually through all of these covenants. We'll see this, is that just because God makes this covenant, and just because God says, I'm going to bless you in this way, doesn't mean that the people respond with obedience. In fact, they do the opposite. And so uh, Noah's extended family just begins to sin more and more. Even Noah, by the end of this whole story, has sort of drunk out, drunk and passed out like a redneck in a tent, you know, and everyone's looking at him and he's just, it's just ugly, right? And so there's all kinds of disobedience that's still happening. In fact, when we get to Genesis 11, the people are, are trying to make this great name for themselves and live life apart from God. And they build this tower called Babel. 
And they're trying to make a name for themselves. And in the midst of that, God calls a man, a man named Abraham. The next person that God is going to institute a covenant with. And he calls Abraham and he says, listen, even though all these people are trying to make a name for themselves, I'll make your name great. And I will make out of you a nation that will bless all the other nations of the earth. Any nation that blesses you will be blessed. Any nation that curses you will be cursed. And they'll all be blessed through you. He makes this incredible promise to him in Genesis 12. Now that's a great promise because Abraham is old. Abraham's wife Sarah is old. They're, they're, they're old. These are senior citizens. They got their AARP cards. And they're laughing at God going, how's this going to happen exactly? And God says, I'm going to do it. And, and, and listen, it takes God 25 years between when he promises it to Abraham and when Isaac is born. Some of you, you feel like you've been waiting to hear from God for a long time on something. You go, I prayed, God, I prayed last week. I'm waiting for an answer. I need to hear from you. What if you didn't hear 20, for 25 years? That's the kind of agony and, and tension that, that Abraham's under as he's trying to live by faith in this promise of God. And so God makes this promise. As you get into Genesis 15, kind of through 18, uh, at different points along the way, God begins to remind Abraham of what he's done. And so years after he makes this initial promise, he enters into covenant with Abraham. There's actually an animal that's sliced down the middle and sacrificed, and, and God walks through it as if to communicate that he's the one making this covenant. This is a unilateral covenant, and the blessings of this particular covenant, this definition of this relationship, is that God is going to give people, uh, specifically the descendants of Abraham, a particular land, the land that is now the nation of Israel, land of Canaan. That's why the, the, the Jews are not all that eager to give that up. They kind of feel like um, this is part of this divine covenant to our first father, Abraham. That's a big deal. The, the blessing also is that Abraham will have a son. Sarah, barren in her old age, will have a son. And that son will develop into a nation. That's just an incredible blessing. The conditions of it are faith. Faith in the promise that, that Abraham has received. And obedience. Walking in, in ways of righteousness and justice. And that's what God commands Abraham and his descendants to do. The sign gets really interesting. Everyone's favorite word, circumcision. I mean, that's a serious sign. There's no turning back at that point. Right? I mean, I, and I don't, I don't mean here to be crude or to be, to be strange, but gentlemen especially, isn't it interesting that when God wanted to get Abraham's attention and have his full devotion, that's where he went? I think there is something to learn from that. There's this incredible sign, this circumcision. And Abraham is 99 years old when he gets circumcised and then has to convince his whole you know, household to get circumcised. Uh, probably not a very fun conversation, that was. Um, but out of this is birthed this nation. This nation. And so, so this nation, you think, oh great, God has pursued these people. He pursued it in Noah, and, and they, you know, they, they blew it, and they kept disobeying. But, but man, he pursued Abraham, and he's going to make this great nation, and they'll be obedient, and they'll be faithful. Mm, not so much. So by the end of Genesis, the people are in Egypt. They're by then experiencing slavery under Pharaoh 400 years later. They're not trusting the Lord. They're not walking with him. And so God, continuing to pursue 
initiates a covenant with Moses. God won't be deterred. I mean, I hope we get this. Is this isn't, God, oh man, I hoped it there, and I hope, but, but I'm coming. That's what God is doing. He's pursuing. He won't take no for an answer. And so he goes to Moses, and he says, Moses, I need you to go into Egypt, and I need you to go to Pharaoh, and I need you to tell him to let my people out of this slavery. And there's this whole interesting discussion with, with Moses about whether he's the guy for the job and how is he going to come through and what about the miraculous signs. And God does all these various miraculous signs and he delivers the people and they experience this covenant, what's called the Mosaic Covenant. When you, when you read the uh, first five books of the Bible, a lot of that is related to and connected with this Mosaic Covenant. And the blessings of this covenant are redemption from slavery. You're not going to be a servant anymore under Pharaoh. You're going to be redeemed from that. The condition is you need to obey the law. And God gives his ten commandments as sort of a summary. And there's lots of other laws that God gives. But, but the ten commandments are sort of this, this all-encompassing big idea. If you, if you live out these, you'll live out the other ones too. Now, now listen. This order is really important. God redeems them from slavery first, then he gives them the law and says, go live this way. So many people think that the Old Testament says, if you obey God, then he'll redeem you. That's not what the Old Testament says. The model, even here, is that God redeems and then he says, go obey. And this obedience, this law, is not to be burdensome, it's to be life-giving, It's a way to maintain the relationship with God in a healthy, satisfying way. That's the condition. The sign of this covenant is the Passover. That last night in Egypt, when God told the people that if they would get an unblemished lamb, and if they would kill it, and wipe its blood on the doorposts of their house, that the angel of death would pass over them. And their firstborn children would live. And they do that. And then they are committed to remember that Passover. And every year they have this Passover meal as a sign, as a way to remember this covenant of what God has done for them. So they have that meal every year. The new community that's formed, as Scripture calls them, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. The idea that that as a nation they're supposed to embody who God is in such a way that outsiders could look in at them and say, that's what life's like with God as the ruler. Are they faithful to that? Give me a guess. No, right? Nobody is here. They're not faithful to it. They transgress it. The first command is have no other gods before me. They're constantly swept up into idolatry and in all kinds of other things. By the book of Judges, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. And yet God will not stop. At any point you'd think God would just go, I'm done with them. There's actually moments where God in his interactions with Moses is like, I am so sick of you guys. I'm just getting rid of you. And Moses is like, hey God, remember you promised you can't do that. And God's like, I know. I love you guys anyway. You just drive me crazy. But he won't stop. And so this fourth covenant of grace that we see comes to David, King David, who had been a shepherd boy and had slayed Goliath with a few smooth stones. He elevates, he's anointed to be king, and he proves faithful, and he's a man after God's own heart, has some falls and some problems, 
at the end, but, but he's, he's the best king Israel has known. And God institutes this covenant with David, and the blessings of this is that there will be a king who rules forever in the line of David. There will always be a king on David's throne. And that's an incredible promise. I mean, what king wouldn't want to know that through my uh, descendants there will always be a king? The conditions of this covenant are the worship of God and worship that is devoted to the Lord specifically in the temple. And this is why uh, David spends so much of his time and energy focusing on preparing uh, to get a temple built, which Solomon then actually executes. The sign of this covenant is the throne and all this emphasis on the king and the throne and then the community being the new kingdom of Israel that's formed and this kingdom that's promised forever. And yet still, people don't obey. They don't worship God in the temple. They go off into high places. They go off and they sacrifice to idols. And as you read the rest of Chronicles and Kings and 2 Samuel, you just see all this idolatry. So you get to the book of Jeremiah, which is where we read from this morning. And Jeremiah, the theme of that is warning. God is warning them, saying, you've got to turn from this. You've got to turn from this idolatry. You've got to turn back to me. I'm the only one who will satisfy you. You're like people that are digging little holes for yourself and trying to be satisfied on that dirty rainwater when there's a fountain of living water available to you. Turn back to me. And they aren't. But in the midst of that plea for them to repent, God gives this new promise of a new covenant. So go with me. Back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. In the midst of all their unfaithfulness, in the midst of their idolatry, in the midst of their continual struggle comes this promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of of Judah. The days are coming. This is a future day to come from Jeremiah's time. This is a day to come, and you can look forward to this. It's going to be a new covenant. I'm going to define the relationship again. But this covenant is different. Verse 32, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Here's the deal. This covenant's going to be different. They're not going to break this one. This is going to be an unbreakable covenant. Not like those other ones that keep getting broken. But here's the covenant that he'll make. Verse 33. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. This is amazing. Rather than having these external things to say, this is how you continue to relate to me, he's going to change their hearts in such a way that they want to do, the, the law's just written there. The natural response of these people, influenced by this new covenant, is going to be to obey him. That's amazing where he says, I will write it on their hearts. Especially when you contrast that with what's written in Jeremiah 17, which says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. And yet God is going to, in this new covenant, change these hearts. And I will be their God, it says. And they shall be my people. That's the refrain over and over for relationship with God. God is saying, I'm not giving up. There's a day coming. I'm going to change these people completely. 
we're going to be in relationship together. I'll finally have them. Verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The day is coming when all the sin that constantly separates me from them, I will forgive it. And how does God describe forgiveness? This is important. See what he says? I will remember their sin no more. Does God, does not, God not know it exists anymore? No. He says, I'm going to choose not to remember it. That's forgiveness. You struggling with forgiveness? In your own life? It's choosing, going, I'm not going to, I'm not going to remember that. I'm not going to choose. I, I distinctly remember forgetting that. That's what God's saying here. I will forgive their sin. And then the next few verses talk about how it's more likely for the stars and the sun to start collapsing out of the sky and, and for the heavens to be measured and, and the foundations of the earth below to be explored than for God to break this promise. This is an unbreakable promise. This, this is an incredible thing. It won't be broken by God's people. Their law is going to be put in them. There's relationship. They'll know him. They'll be forgiven, it, forgiven and it won't end. That's this promise of a new covenant. And you go, well, gosh, that was a long time ago. Has God updated that at all? The answer is yes. Hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ, who when John the Baptist saw him, called him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is in an upper room with his disciples, his closest friends, and they're celebrating the Passover, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And Jesus there says to them this. After they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. A lot of manuscripts actually enter new covenant there. This is my blood of the covenant. What covenant? The covenant of Jeremiah 31. How do you know that? Keep reading. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right? I will remember their iniquities no more. I will forgive them. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise. Jesus Christ giving himself, his body and his blood is the fulfillment of this very thing. Look, look at how we see this idea of Jesus being this covenant fulfiller. The blessings of the covenant with Jesus, this new covenant that he fulfills, forgiveness of sin, knowing God. That, that's what this is. Jesus, uh, the scripture says, is God's one and only son given so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. There's a big blessing, eternal life. Well, what's the condition? It's the condition to not eat animals with blood in it. Make sure you obey all these commandments. 
No, the, the condition of this new covenant is to trust in Jesus who did keep all the commandments. It's to trust in Jesus who already won this for you. And by this trust, according to Jeremiah 31, what happens? Now you want to obey. God changes your heart in such a way that you delight to serve him. And in the moments when you don't, you're convicted over it and you're grieved over it and you're sorrowful for it. If, in fact, you have this eternal life, this new covenant relationship with Jesus. Sign of it? communion the lord's supper it's what we celebrate every week when we gather and this is why we celebrate it because what we're celebrating each week when we come to these tables and we take this bread and we drink from the cup is we're celebrating that god will remember our sins no more and that we can know him and we can have eternal life with him and i don't know about you i need that reminder all the time because I'm like Noah's descendants, and Abraham's descendants, and David's descendants, and Moses' descendants. And I forget a lot. Every week, as we come to that table, in the eating and in the drinking, we preach to ourselves a new sermon about this new covenant fulfilled by King Jesus. The one who will reign forever and ever. A descendant of David, the scripture makes sure to point out. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Jesus changes everything. Mark Driscoll writes it this way in his book on doctrine. He says, Jesus is a better Noah who brings judgment of sin, salvation by grace to the family of God, and a new world free of sin and its effects. Jesus is a better Abraham the blessing to the nations of the earth. Jesus is the blessing. Jesus is a better Moses as God's prophet who actually fulfilled the law for us, allows God's wrath to pass over us because of his shed blood, conquered our Pharaoh of Satan, redeemed us from sin, and journeys with us toward home despite our sin and grumbling. Jesus is a better David who is seated on a throne ruling as the king of kings and is coming again to establish his eternal and global kingdom of peace and prosperity. That is what Jesus is doing. Listen, the application today, the thought here today, there's no like, hey, go do these three things in light of this. Here's the idea. Look to Jesus. God has forever been pursuing his people. And in Jesus, he is pursuing you. Whether you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Listen, he's pursuing you. He's offering himself to you. He's giving himself as the Lamb of God to take away your sin. And for those of you who are here who go, I know that, I believe that, I'm already a Christian. Listen, don't check this out and go, well, that would have been a good thing to bring my non-Christian friend to. Listen, You need the new covenant reminder, so much so that Paul said, whenever you gather, make sure you eat and drink in remembrance of him. And so this week, as you're faced with discouragement, and as you're faced with temptation, as you're faced with worry, and anxiety, and anger, 
You can count to 10 if you want, if that helps. But turn your gaze again to the unstopping, never changing, never giving up, always and forever covenant love of Jesus. That's what you need. That's where you'll find satisfaction. That's where you'll find hope. That's where you'll find joy. Let's turn there. We're going to turn there now together. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for your love. It never stops. It never ceases. And Lord, there's not a person in here who has been uh, so faithful as to deserve that kind of love. Lord, none of us have. That you give it to us in Jesus, the the truly faithful one. Thank you, God. Stir our affections for him this morning. Help us to just be so overjoyed at the reality of his constant pursuit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going we're gonna to respond now, and we're going to respond with some great songs singing about how it was finished on the cross. Listen, there doesn't need to be another covenant. There's not another one coming. Jesus fulfilled the last one. It was finished. That's what he yelled on the cross. And so we're going to sing and celebrate the truth of that cross. Um, We're also going to celebrate communion. And what an appropriate time to do that, to, to pause and to reflect on Jesus' body and blood given so that our sin could be forgiven. We could know God. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to celebrate communion. Here's kind of how it works here is we just would invite you to take as much time as you want or need to pray or to think, um, to talk with the Lord, to rejoice in him. And, and whenever you want to, as soon as you're ready, um, f- feel free to come up to the table. There's tables in these corners as well as back in the middle. And we just would have you come to the inside, if you would. Come to the inside of your aisle and then go to the table. And you can go back around the outsides. If you want to um, spend some time in the hallway praying, if you want to sit as a, as a friend or a family praying together at your seat, feel free to do that. Uh, when your hearts are prepared, when you've fully reminded yourself of this good news, um, take communion on your own. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, you, you, this is all kind of new to you or you're exploring it or, or you know, I, I just know I'm not yet a follower of Christ. Um, this, this meal, this celebration is for those who are following the Lord as imperfectly as they do. Um, and so if, if you're here and you, you know that's not you, we don't want you to feel any pressure or expectation. Um, for you to come up would actually be hypocrisy. And so we, want, we don't want you to do that. Um, so instead, take this time and pray and think and and maybe, maybe take a moment and speak to Jesus and ask him if these things are so. And keep coming back. These next few weeks, we're looking at a pretty intense look at who Jesus is and what he's done. I, I hope you'll join us again for that. Um, there's also some men and women in the back. John's back there right now. He'd love to pray for you. Um, some other folks back there would love to pray for you. If you have anything going on, uh, any point during the rest of the service, you can go back to that corner. And those folks will pray for you and serve you and encourage you. There's also giving boxes in the back. You can give uh, as you feel led. Um, and I think that's, that's it. So let's respond. God's done great things for us. Um, when your heart's prepared, you're free to come forward.